go to Revelation chapter number 10. I will not review the first nine chapters of Revelation, but broadly speaking, we have seen Jesus and his churches and that he's with his churches. We've seen heaven and got a glimpse into what the worship of heaven would look like. And then we've seen back on earth these judgments that begin to unfold as God punishes evil through the seal judgments. Of course, the seventh seal was the prelude to seven trumpets. And we have now seen six of the seven trumpets and all the devastation that's associated with those. And now we get an interlude, this a brief parenthetical in chapter 10 and a little bit of chapter 11 before we get to the seventh trumpet. And I want you to see this today. I was describing to my wife, I think on Tuesday of this week, the cliff note version of this chapter of Revelation chapter number 10. And I was telling her, I, can't, I can find some people who've written on this chapter. I can't find anyone who's preached on this chapter for the life of me. Like, it's very difficult to, to, to find someone. And as I'm reading through it, I'm like, I'm understanding why. Like, this, this isn't the, the, the preachiest text in the world. And I, I told her, you know, here's, here's what Revelation 10 is about. This big angel comes with a message, but there's also some thunders that have a secret message that John gets, but he can't give, give to us. And then John has to eat a book. And the book tastes good, but it hurts his stomach. The end. And she's like, good luck preaching that. And I'm like, well, I appreciate it. So here we go. Her good luck wishes and all, Revelation chapter number 10. We're going to start with this very important message, plus a secret that we get in Revelation 10. So John says, I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven. He was clothed with a cloud. A rainbow was upon his head. His face was as it were the sun, his feet as pillars of fire, and he had in his hand a little book opened. And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. Now, let me just cut it there. People spend a lot of time racing their theological motors, trying to figure out who is this angel? What is his identity? And some people say, I'm, I'm certain that this is, is angel means messenger. And this is actually a picture of the Lord Jesus. And if you look at Revelation 1 and you see the Lord Jesus in all of his glory, there certainly would be similarities. Others say, no, 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 I'm certain that this is like an archangel. This is Gabriel. This is Michael. This is a mighty angel, an archangel. Others say, no, this is just an angel. Honestly, I don't know. Uh, I don't think they know either, frankly. And I don't think that the description that's given here of this angel is meant to help us identify the angel. I think the description is meant to clue us in that there is going to be something highly important and significant that this angel will either say or do. All of the description is meant to point us almost like strobe lights flashing to like pay attention to this. I don't think that it's meant to be, well, what is the cloud a metaphor of? And what is the, the face shining as the sun a metaphor of? I think it's just meant to say, this is highly significant. It's, it's not just an angel. It's a mighty angel. This angel is descending from heaven. This angel is, is clothed with a cloud and a rainbow around his head and shining as the sun. And even the reality that he stands one foot on the land and one foot on the sea is likely symbolic that he has a message for the whole world. And it's meant to cue us into Listen to this. And when he talks, it's loud like a lion would roar. And it's meant to be attention grabbing. Now, it continues on and it says, when he had cried, middle of verse three, 
Seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, who or what are these seven thunders and what did they say? Don't know. Some sort of small ensemble <laughs> that when they speak together, their, their voices sound like uh, rolling thunder. When the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. Now that's kind of frustrating, isn't it? Here in the middle of all this drama and this mighty angel comes some sort of message and John's intuition is to write it down and to say, hey, I want to let you know what, what they just told me. But there comes this voice that says, uh-uh, you can't, you can't do that. Don't let the people know what you just heard. It's kind of like someone coming to you and saying, oh my word, you're not going to believe this. You say, what? And they say, oh, I forgot, I can't tell you. And you're like, don't do that to me, right? Like, don't tease me that way. Don't tell me that you have a message, but then you can't tell me what the message is. But, but here's what it is, you know, there's something happened, but we can't tell you. And I think that there's an important lesson to learn even from that, that the book of Revelation is not a tell-all. The book of Revelation will tell us many things, but it will not tell us everything. There are still pieces to the puzzle that we don't get, that we don't know, that we don't even sometimes understand. And Revelation is not meant to give you every single facet and every single detail. And this is oftentimes why people go to the book of Revelation, which is a poor motivation. But they go to the book of Revelation to feel like a know-it-all to study and to understand some things and to be able to uh, thread the needle on some of the finer points of what this means or what that means. And they do it out of a knowledge puffs up mentality, out of the pride of life to somehow know more than other Christians or feel like they have a leg up on people and that they have some sort of, of special knowledge that other people don't have. And that's a poor reason to go to the book. And this book is not meant to tell you everything. And that's not just true of Revelation specifically. That's also true of the Bible generally. The Bible tells us many things, but it doesn't tell us everything. The Bible tells you everything you need to know, but it doesn't tell you everything there is to know. There are many things that we don't know. And you can go wrong on either side of this. There are some people who approach life through an agnostic lens of, can we really know anything? Pontius Pilate kind of had this, this uh, idea when Jesus was there at his trial and Pontius Pilate said, what's truth? You know, can we really know truth? Is there really a capital T truth? Is there anything that we can really be certain of? Yeah, yeah, there is. God in his grace has given us his word so that we can know many things and that we can know them certainly and that we can anchor off to them as capital T truth that is not subjective and is not bound to our experience, but is true no matter what our experience is. It's just truth. Sometimes Christians will err on this side when it comes to things of the future or things of heaven, and, and they'll oftentimes quote, or I should say misquote, uh, you know, eye has not seen nor ear heard nor has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. Look, we haven't seen it and we haven't heard it and, and we can't know the things that God has prepared for those that love him. And it's like, no, 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 no. keep reading. The next verse says, but God has revealed them to us by his spirit. You know, we haven't seen them. We haven't heard them, but they've been revealed to us by his spirit. So don't act like we can't know anything about heaven. But other people fall on the other side of this wrongly. And they think that you can know everything or should know everything. And that's not true. You don't get all the 
pieces to the puzzle. Some questions are not meant to be answered. Some questions are not even meant to be asked, frankly. Paul talks about this with Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.4, where he tells Timothy, Timothy, don't even give time. Don't even give your attention to fables and endless genealogies and these questions that all these questions do is engender more questions, but rather give your time and attention to the things that are profitable that will build people up in the faith. Paul echoed this sentiment in Romans when he said that we, there are some things that are just not worth arguing about. There are some things that are doubtful disputations and we're not meant to spin our wheels or waste our time on them because they don't follow after peace and they're not profitable. And while I can't say that there are stupid questions, I wouldn't go that far, there certainly though are strife engendering questions that should be avoided. And oftentimes people, myself included sometimes, I'm guilty of this, want to be a know-it-all or want to feel that we have it all figured out and the pride of life starts to creep in and you start to want to answer and know everything and we're not meant to answer or know everything. And sometimes it takes a lot of wisdom and maturity to be able to back up and say, you know what? I don't have to know the answer to that. I don't have to have that one figured out. That's not something that is worth my time. I can move on to something else. And this is one of those moments where John is told to tell us, I got some knowledge, but you don't get it. And this is not for you. But this angel who appeared originally now resurfaces and we are drawn to him yet again. Here we are, verse number five. The angel which I saw stand on the sea and upon the earth, he lifted up his hand to heaven. And here's what he said. He said, I swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are and the earth and the things that therein are and the sea and the things which are therein. So get this moment. As if the first three verses weren't enough to spotlight this angel and command our attention. Now he raises a hand. I assume the right hand, but I don't know. Maybe it was his left. But he raises a hand and he says, look, I am going to promise, I am going to swear, and I don't promise on my life, I promise to God. I, I, I promise by him that made everything, the earth, the sea, the heavens, and anything that's in them, I promise by that one. Now, all of a sudden, I am anticipating and I am ready for a very dramatic announcement, right? This has all been leading to this moment of what is this guy gonna say? Like I'm, I'm tuned in and I'm interested. And here's what he says. There should be time no longer, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants, the prophets. All right? I just heard what he said, but what did he say? First of all, time will be no longer. This is not a philosophical, you know, there will be no more time when we get into eternity. This is saying time has run out. His message is, first of all, the alarm clock is buzzing and there is no snooze. The kitchen timer has hit zero and we're not adding any more time to the timer. Time has run out. 
This is where we're at. There's no more uh, delays. There's no more waiting. There's no more patience needed. This is the end of that clock. And at this time is going to be when the seventh angel with his trumpet sounds. And when he does that, the mystery of God will be finished. Now we're going to have to understand what the mystery of God is in a minute. But what he's saying is the clock is at zero and the, and the brownies are fully baked and they're coming out of the oven. It doesn't stick to the toothpick when I put the toothpick in and we're not putting it back in for more time. We're at zero, brownies are coming out. These brownies are the mystery of God. The mystery of God is finished. It is fully baked when that seventh angel sounds, which is about to happen in chapter number 11. Now, the million dollar question is what is the mystery of God? If there is no more time before the mystery of God should be finished and this is going to be done, what is the mystery of God? That is the question that helps you know what the angel just said. Because if you don't know that, you don't get it. Now, first of all, a mystery is not, in the Bible, a murder mystery or a Scooby-Doo mystery, okay? That's not, that's not mystery in the Bible. Mystery in the Bible is a secret that God has that he chooses to disclose at an appointed time. And oftentimes, he does this at multiple times. He does it progressively. It's what's called progressive revelation, that he will reveal a little bit of the secret and then later he'll reveal a little bit more of the secret and then a little bit more and then a little bit more. And this specifically tells you that this mystery of God was declared to the servants, the prophets, meaning this mystery of God is not local to the New Testament alone. This has already been foretold in the prophets that God already called his shot back with the prophets and you can find the mystery of God there. Now the prophets are big, there's a lot of them and there's a lot that they said, but it at least helps me narrow it down somewhat. There was a secret that God had that he chose to disclose and he disclosed this in the prophets and it, it wasn't, there's lots of mysteries that were kind of made known more or less when we got to the New Testament. So for example, the church was a mystery. The idea that the Gentiles and the Jews would mix together as the people of God in the church was a mystery. Colossians will tell us that uh, Christ in us, the hope of glory, was a mystery. The indwelling presence of Christ in his people was a mystery. And that secret got disclosed to us uh, in the New Testament through Jesus. This is one that is Old Testament disclosed. So what is this mystery of God that will be finished when the seventh trumpet sounds. Well, let's turn over a page and look at what is said when the seventh trumpet sounds, and I think we'll figure it out. Look at Revelation 11. Just turn the page, verse number 15. We'll, we'll be here soon, and we'll cover this in depth, but I want you to understand it. The seventh angel sounded, verse 15 of chapter 11. And there were great voices in heaven, and here's what they said. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now there it is. That is the mystery of God that will be finished when the seventh trumpet sounds that was disclosed to the prophets. Now let's test this theory. Was that truth disclosed, a secret that was made known in the Old Testament to the prophets? That there's a kingdom of God that is coming that will supplant the kingdoms of men and that kingdom will be forever and ever. Absolutely. I mean, that, that is 
the stuff of the Old Testament, starting with there would be this Messiah that would come from Israel. Not just from Israel, but then it was more specifically disclosed that it would be through Judah. And then it was more specifically disclosed, not just through Judah's tribe, but it would be through David. And the throne of David is where this Messiah would rule. And by the time you get to the prophets, by the time you get to Daniel chapter two or Daniel chapter number seven, you begin to see in relatively grave detail these prophecies that there are kingdoms of men. Oh, there's a Babylonian kingdom and coming after them is a Persian kingdom and after them will be a Greek kingdom and a Roman kingdom, but there will be other kingdoms of men. But one day will come the son of man. One day will come King Jesus and he will envelop all of these kingdoms and he will establish his own kingdom and he will reign forever and ever. That was disclosed. You get to Isaiah chapter nine, our most famous Christmas verse, that unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But what is it about this one, this, this child that will be born? He'll be a child king because the government shall be upon his shoulder. And the increase of his government and peace shall be without end. And he will reign from the throne of David forever and ever. And the Old Testament prophets begin to say over and over and over again that this kingdom is in fact coming. This kingdom begins to be, to be described as the lion laying with the lamb, for example. Indicative of peace that is pervasive in this kingdom. It's different. We begin to be told that this will be a kingdom that is not like our earthly kingdoms. That when King Jesus calls the shots, it won't be like Bush or Obama or Trump or Biden calling the shots. It'll be way better. That justice will not be the exception. It will be the rule. The righteousness will prevail. And this idea of the kingdom coming, that God is a kingdom that will be established forever and ever begins to unfold. And by the time you get to Jesus, Jesus begins to teach his disciples. Pray this way, guys. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Sanctify your name, God. What's the next phrase? Thy kingdom come. What is that? What is thy kingdom come? At the very least, it's an affirmation of the truth that God has a kingdom that is coming. But it also is a bring on the kingdom moment. It is a prayer of God. I affirm this truth that you do have a kingdom, that this kingdom is coming. But I'm telling you, bring it on. I want it. Come. I've, I long for this. I yearn for this. I want this. I, I, I want the day where peace is pervasive and justice prevails and righteousness is everywhere and you are ruling and you are calling the shots. I, I want that day. And what this angel is saying in Revelation chapter number 10 is highly significant. He's saying, look, time's up. Clock is at zero. We're not waiting anymore for this. This is coming. The mystery of God will be finished. The kingdom of God is coming. Jesus will reign forever and ever. That is what is staring us in the face. That's what he's saying. And as we move through the book of Revelation, we are going to get to those parts that 
we love about Revelation, lots of times people don't like chapters 6 through 17-ish because they're hard and they're gritty and they're tough and there's judgments. But then you get to the end and you see the kingdom of God and you see, and you see heaven and you see all this healing and all this restoration and this new humanity. And it's like, I love that stuff. And he's saying, this is coming. Hang on, there's, there's, there's no more delaying. This is about to happen. But then he continues on, verse number eight. And he begins to tell us about the bittersweet nature of prophecy. Here's what he says. The voice which I heard from heaven spake to me again. So not the angel, not the thunders. This voice that said, don't write the stuff down. And here's what he said. Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, which stands upon the sea and upon the earth. And so I went to the angel and I said to him, give me that little book. And the angel said, take it and eat it up. That's strange. It shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. Hey, here's the book. Don't read it. Eat it. And by the way, it's going to taste really good, but is not going to sit well with your stomach. You say, what is this? Is this like first century Taco Bell? Like what's happening? <laughs> like burritos, chalupas, tacos, and little angel food books, you know? Tastes good, doesn't sit well. No, let's keep reading, okay? Verse 10. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it up. And sure enough, it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. Now, most people read this and they say, that's new and that's weird. And a little bit weird, yes. New, no. It's, it's actually not new at all, it's very old. And if you don't understand this, then you will, it'll be completely lost on you what is happening in this moment. This is a remix of Ezekiel. You say, I didn't know God did remixes. He does, right here. Ezekiel was told like literally the same thing. God came to Ezekiel with a message and it was on this scroll or roll or book. And he told Ezekiel, eat it. But when you eat it, it's gonna taste good, but it's going to hurt your stomach. And sure enough, Ezekiel tells you, I ate it and it didn't hurt my stomach. Like it was, I was a knots. He tells you he was feverish and, and this didn't sit well with me. And this is meant to, it, it assumes that you know a little something about Ezekiel and it's meant to draw you back to that and use it as a springboard for what's happening. Now, if you don't know anything about Ezekiel, then you're just lost. And you're like, this is just a strange episode. But if you know something about Ezekiel, it's so potent and so beautiful. Now, let me give you the elevator pitch for Ezekiel, okay? I don't have time to, to walk through the whole book because Ezekiel is like a big book. But here's the elevator pitch. God had come to Jerusalem in judgment but then he comes to Ezekiel and he says, I want you to prophesy that while the most severe judgment they've ever seen just came, more severe judgment is coming. Like they think it's over, but it's about to be really over. But let them know on the heels of that judgment is coming something beautiful. On the heels of that judgment will be restoration. On the heels of that judgment will be hope. And God begins to prophesy about what this would look like, a new future. 
new humans in a new world animated by the spirit of God, a world permeated with God's love and justice. And Ezekiel is told to imbibe this message and then go give it to everyone. And the message was in fact bittersweet. And that cliff note version of Ezekiel is exactly what's happening in this moment in Revelation. Judgment has come in the most austere, severe way that we have ever seen. Yet, there is worse judgment about to happen, but right on the heels of that will be hope and restoration and a new heaven and a new earth, a kingdom where Jesus will reign forever. This, this idea that love and justice will, be, will permeate everything. Like that little encapsule of Ezekiel is unfolding through the book of Revelation and it's meant, to, it's meant to connect the two. But beyond that connection, there is this very simple truth that prophecy is bittersweet. John is told to take the message and he's told it'll be sweet, but it'll be bitter. And haven't we seen that? Didn't we just see that in the last two chapters? Chapters eight, chapters nine. It's sweet that God hears the cries of his people. It is sweet that God does not let evil go unpunished. But when you see the judgment of God on that evil, it makes your stomach turn a little bit. Not a little bit, a lot of it. It goes down hard when you start to see the devastation and the calamity and the earthquakes and the woes and the people dying is it sweet or is it bitter? It's both. And honestly, what is true of prophecy in general is true of Revelation specifically, is true of the whole Bible. The Bible is a bittersweet book. You say, you can't call it bitter, it's, it's only sweet. It's not only sweet, it's both. Is the Bible a sweet book? Absolutely. That's why the psalmist could say that uh, that the words of God were like honey in his mouth, sweet, that he wanted to eat them? Is there so much that is true and is awesome in the Bible? Yes, you read it, and what do you learn? You learn you're not alone. You learn there's a, a power that's higher than you, and that this power, this God, is not capricious, is not testy, it does not fly off the handle, but he is a planner, and he is logical and he works its plan to its natural end and that this God wants relationship with us, that he wants to know us and love us and that there is warmth and affection offered to us. And if, and if we have relationship with God, that he is for us and not against us, all of those things are sweet. All of those things are beautiful. All of those things are truths that we should herald and proclaim and let like our heart marinate in. It's beautiful, but the Bible's a bitter book. There's sweetness in salvation. Jesus would come, would love us, would die for us, would offer us heaven, would offer us eternal life. That's sweet. But what does Jesus die for? Sins. Whose sins? Yours. My sins? Yeah, you're a sinner. What, what do you mean I'm a sinner? I mean, you're a sinner. Well, what do I have to do to get rid of that sin? Repent, admit it, 
humble yourself and admit you can't save yourself and throw yourself upon the mercy and grace of Jesus, that's bitter. Now that's true, but that's a hard pill to swallow for many people. You don't need anything when you come to Jesus, but some people can't find it in themselves to have nothing. That humbles you, doesn't it? That attacks your pride that I can't do this myself, but I need Jesus. What are the commands of God? The commands of God are sweet. The commands of God lead to life and godliness. This is the way life really works and, it, and life will work best if you follow his commands. But are not the commands of God bitter? They attack our autonomy. They make us bow the knee and admit that Jesus is Lord and that his ways are higher than ours. That's not easy. That's hard. The Bible is sweet and bitter. What am I trying to do? I'm trying to set your expectations. When you approach this book, when you look at God's self-disclosure, there are so many things that are beautiful and just jump off the page that you want to put on a coffee mug and you want to put on a t-shirt and you want to post on Facebook. But there are a lot of other things that jump off the page that attack your sensibilities, that step on your toes and confront the fire out of you. And you don't get one without the other. You get both. Is this book at times what's corrective and it reproves you and it, and it hurts to read and it, and it lessens your ego? Absolutely. Are there parts that you may feel are culturally regressive or that you just don't enjoy? Or you, if you had to write it, you would write it a different way? Probably. But that's how you know you got a Bible and not a self-help manual. It's meant to be sweet and bitter. It's both. I love how Eugene Peterson put it. He said, the Bible is a most comforting book. It's also a most discomforting book. Eat this book. It'll be sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will also be bitter to your stomach. And I love this. You cannot reduce this book to what you can handle. You can't domesticate this book to what you're comfortable with. You cannot make it your toy poodle trained to respond to your commands. And there are a lot of people that want to make the Bible their toy poodle that they pull out and I just play with the parts that I want to play with and I, I train it to follow after me. It doesn't work that way. It's a Bible, not a book of your own making. And that makes sense to me. If, there, if there's a God who gives us his word and I open this up and I read it and everything aligns with how I think and how I feel and what I would do and what I would say and my sensibilities. Strong odds, I'm not reading a book from another person or entity. Strong odds, I have a God of my own making if everything in here aligns with who I am and what I think and, and how I feel. It would make sense that if there's a God that's bigger and higher and grander and truer than I am, then there would be things in here that confront me and attack me and don't line up with what I would think or do or say or feel. That's the way it works. You can't have it any other way. And when you approach the Bible, don't run from it for that reason. A lot of people run from the Bible for that very reason because it will confront me and I just... Oh, it just sets my teeth on edge sometimes. Run to it for that reason. You need the confrontation. You need the feedback. You need someone willing to step into your life and speak the truth, even if it doesn't agree with your truth. You need that. 
So run to it and understand what you're getting when you begin to read it. I love the way John Stott put it. He said, we must allow the word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. If none of that happens when you read the Bible, I don't know what you're reading. If it doesn't ever disturb you, if it doesn't ever stir you out of complacency, if it, does, if it never causes you to think or act in a different way or confront you, then all you're reading is little devotionals that are, that are sugar highs and you're not actually reading the Bible. And there's a danger in that. To read a little snippet that someone gave me and then their, their you know, ramblings on what that snippet meant and their blog and their devotional and I never get the meat. I never get what I actually need. I just get little pieces of candy from the Bible. And sure there's candy and there is sweetness, but it's not all candy. It's not. And we must be comfortable with allowing the Bible to be the Bible. I came across this quote from a New Testament scholar, someone who purports to know the New Testament very well. His name is uh, Luke Timothy Johnson. And he gave what he feels should be the baseline of our authority. And I thought it was worth sharing. He said, this is from a New Testament scholar. I think it's important to state clearly that we do in fact reject the straightforward commands of scripture. And we appeal instead to another authority. Right, now that alone is a mouthful. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience of thousands of others. Now you get what the New Testament scholar just said. And I'm telling you this because churches are riddled with this nonsense. I see what the Bible says, but I reject it. That is not my authority. Instead, how do I feel? What does my experience tell me? Where does my heart take me and where do their hearts take them? Because that is not what really matters. What really matters is my experience. And I want you to know that a, a solid church will never chart their course by what feels good. Now, sometimes what you should do does feel good. Sometimes it doesn't. But you do not allow your emotions to lead you into what is truth or what is not truth. We don't base our theology on what makes us look nicer or smarter. You base your theology on what the Bible says. And if that offends you, sorry, not sorry. But that's the way it works. Your offendedness is not a substitute for truth. <laughs> And the world that we live in is so emotionally driven and so drawn to their own experience and allowing their offendedness or their lack of offendedness to be a substitute for truth that it is almost strange in this culture or in this day and age to have someone say, that's not the way it should go. What should happen is you should look to this. Does it tell you everything? No, but it tells you a lot of things. And what it tells you plainly, abide by that, even if you don't like it. That is when God gets to be God and the Bible gets to be the Bible. And without that, you're hosed. It's important that you think through this in your own personal framework as you approach the Bible. It's important that we as a church continually embrace this and don't shy away from this and say, hey, we want this to be our guide. This is why 
I love to preach expositorily through books of the Bible, verse by verse, because I would never preach on Revelation 10 if I, if I was choosing for myself. It's a hard chapter to preach. It's pretty strange in a, few, in a few instances, and it's way easier to preach Philippians or something else. But it's important that as a church, even, we understand this and we let the Bible guide. What am I trying to say? Simply put, here it is. Number one, think about the kingdom. This week, I hope that you will take some time to pray as Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Thy kingdom come. God, I affirm the truth that you have a kingdom and that it's coming and I look forward to it. Sometimes we don't do this because we lack the theological knowledge and, and there's just, what do you mean kingdom? What does this mean? And we have to understand some. And hopefully we've got a little bit of that today. Oftentimes we don't do this because we're so concerned with our little kingdom that we never think about his kingdom. I'm so concerned about what, what I have to do and my job and my money and my family and, 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 what's, and my vacation that's coming up and, and the wedding that's coming up and my, 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 that we get so consumed in this that we never zoom out on a macro level and see that all of history is his story and everything is marching to this moment where God says, look, the mystery is finished and my kingdom is coming and this is a game changer. And we need to zoom out and understand that. We need to think about that. We need to pray that way. But secondly, I hope that I can align your expectations a little bit on what the Bible is or should be. It is, it is a bittersweet book. It tastes good, yes, but it doesn't sit well in your stomach sometimes. And that's okay. That's actually a profitable thing and a helpful thing. And Ezekiel knew it and John knew it. But we need to know it too, and we need to live with this, not just the sweet parts, but also the bitter parts. Now, last verse, and I'm done. Verse 11, he said unto me, thou must prophesy again before many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So this is pretty simple. John, I got a message, and this message is for everybody. It doesn't matter their social status. It doesn't matter their economic status. It doesn't matter the language that they speak or what country they're from or if they're a king or not. The world will need to hear this. John, I have a message and it has global ramifications. And I am recommissioning you. John has already been commissioned to prophesy and to speak, but I am recommissioning you. and I am sending you out again that we are going to, we have more to tell. And I want you to tell the world. You say, what is this more to tell? Well, it's coming up at the end of Revelation. Chapter 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 and 15, it's coming up. But this is, it's not Revelation 1 through 10, the end. John, there's more to prophesy and there's more to tell and I'm recommissioning you and we're gonna do this all over again and we get to learn more and more and more as we begin to work through this. So more to come on what exactly this is that John gets to tell to the whole world, but we'll begin to see it as we work through it and go ahead and read ahead on your own and start to read chapter 11 and, and start to understand it a little bit. But more to come and we'll dive into it and understand what else John is about to prophesy.